Good morning, everybody. It's Mark Steiner. Welcome back. Here's the Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Let me reiterate one more time, uh, as we'll do during the course of the show many times, to say farewell to Stephanie Mavrona. She's off to Princeton University to get her graduate degree in public policy. She's been with us over four years now. An amazing human being and producer uh, who helped turn the show around in many ways and change the nature of it and uh, is off. This is my last day on the air with her today because tomorrow uh, my dear colleague Dr. Kimberly Moffat is taking our show. I have to be out of town. Uh, but um, we just want to celebrate Stephanie. And uh, when she first got here, she was an intern here on the Mark Steiner Show many, many moons ago when she was at UMBC. And she took a bus two hours back and forth to get to the show and get back. Uh, and uh, she uh, served as well. So we want to say farewell, good luck. She's one of the best. We all love her here at WEAA. So uh, let's get to the show. We are going to talk about what happened uh, in the trial of the officers uh, in the death of Freddie Gray. Um, Freddie Gray, uh, those officers were all, um, the, the, excuse me, the, the, there was not even an acquittal. The state's attorney decided to drop the rest of the cases. She gave a very impassioned speech yesterday in her press conference. The defense attorneys and the FOP gave a press conference as well. We're going to analyze all that with you about where we go from here, why it happened, and what it means. Uh, we are joined here by Erica Blount Danois, a reporter and author who's been covering this trial. Erica, good to have you with us again. Good to have you. Good to be here, Mark. <laughs> it's always good to be. <laughs> uh, it's good to have you with us. And uh, Ralik Hayes is with us, a coordinator for Be More Block. Good to have you with us, Ralik. Great to be here. Uh, and Baynard Woods joins us, who is a reporter with The Guardian, editor-at-large of the City Paper, and has been covering this trial intensely, as he did during the uprising out there every night. Baynard, good to have you with us. Hey, y'all. Uh, and you all can join us out there at 410-319-8888. What are your thoughts and ideas? We really want to hear about you, for, from you. 410-319-8888. You can also tweet us at Mark Steiner, send an email to talk at org. Log on to our Facebook pages, 410-319-8888 is the number to call to join in on this conversation. So, Erica, let me start with you. We haven't talked to you in a while about this, so let me begin with you. Uh, uh, the, I'm, a, I'm curious to your reaction to the whole thing since you've been watching the trial so closely and reporting on it um, yeah. as well. Uh, when that announcement came up, talk a bit about your, your feelings and thoughts at that moment. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been covering it since... Uh December with the first trial, actually since the funeral, so I've been covering, you know, also what's been going on around it, and youth, including, you know, youth advocacy. So um, I think we, you know, folks who had been in the trial, including Baynard, uh, we had been there every day, and we sort of expected that that was going to happen. I think what was unusual, though, was that it happened so quickly, um, and that, you know, this trial I thought was going to be one, I, all of the trials to me were important, but I thought that this one was particularly important because um, Garrett Miller was the arresting officer, and I had uh, actually just wrote a story um, about the, you know, theories that the injury actually occurred before he got into the van. So I talked to a bunch of medical professionals who um, said that, you know, from the video, it looks like he's, you know, he has partial paralysis in his legs and that, um, you know, there were questions even in the court testimony about the three officers. They had, you know, a private meeting and then came back and put Gray in the van. And, you know, we didn't, find, you know, we never heard what that meeting was about. <clears throat> so I thought or hoped that, you know, this trial would sort of give us some more insight into what happened before um 
he went into the van. You know, however, uh, prosecutors had taken this, um, I guess, from the medical examiner that <clears throat> the injury happened at the fourth stop. So, you know, the, they were mostly arguing about, you know, seat belting and, you know, whether officers called a medic and that kind of thing. And that was just going to be more of the same if that was the route that they were going to take. So, um, you know, it was sort of, there was sort of no other option other than to drop the remaining cases. And, and, uh, and let me, Boehner, let me come to you before we go to Relique. Um, uh, when we were speaking yesterday, you thought that things were revealed in the, in the wake of this, uh, of dropping these charges. And, and what, what are your thoughts about what we might be looking for from here on in and what you think we are learning now? Yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be, because there was a gag order since last October on, on all parties involved in the case, the only way anything could come out was in the courtroom. <clears throat> and so our, what we knew was, was very limited. And, and so, like Erica was just saying, the theories of the case were limited to the theory that the state's attorney's office was proposing or the counter theories that the defense was proposing. Um, and... A lot of evidence wasn't permissible in the courtroom, but was evidence that is evidence that exists. And so there were text messages that came up. Let's uh, tried to get them entered in during Goodson's trial that had um, an officer who went who gave a code name of Danny into his cell phone with one of the witnesses that he was apparently texting, or, or it was alleged by Bledsoe in the court was texting to possibly influence. This witness's testimony, there were apparently, uh, Mosby said yesterday in her press conference, that there were text messages between the officers that weren't, um, that there weren't warrants for by the police department. The state's attorneys then, I mean, the, the Gene Ryan and the, and the defense lawyers at their press conference, I asked about that, and they said, well, you know, it's the state's attorney's office for not getting the right warrant for, um, to get those, those uh, text messages, but it just shows the deep divide that Mosby was talking about, that rather than being helped by the police, I mean, imagine any other case where the police say, oh, well, yep, we lost that one because the state's attorney didn't get the the search warrant right. Um, It's just unthinkable that in in any other case that that would be the the reaction of the police department. So I think one of the things that might happen as more information comes out, the prosecutors around the country might, will be looking really closely, who who may be prosecuting police, We'll be looking really closely at this case as more information comes out to see how to make certain information be admissible. I mean, for, you know, the, the uh, police also mentioned yesterday, the FOP, that the uh, night that at the time of the arrest, the state's attorney was prosecuting 30 people for 30 black men specifically for having the exact same night that uh, Gray was arrested with. And, you know, we hadn't heard of the knife in months because it was not allowed to be mentioned in court. So, there are a lot of facts of the case that were just completely absent of the legal arguing around the case. Uh, and and uh, to be clear, what you said at the very top, uh, before we turn to Relique and Doug Colbert, just come in the studio as well, um, and open the phones at 410-319-8888. Uh, are you saying that, that the text messages were not released by the police to the state's attorney? Is that what you, was that what you said? Yeah, that? yeah. So we don't have any. We've, we've not seen any of these text messages. Previously, the only hint of them was in... Uh, but so trying to get them entered into the, the case uh, in, in Goodson's trial. So so we've not seen any of these messages, and we didn't know they existed until, uh, you know, between a witness and an officer until Goodson's trial and, and text messages between the officers themselves 
the first even mention of that. So, and I, and I would, let me turn here to Relique Hayes and get your analysis. And I, I want to say about the knife. Just, uh, this may be an aside, but something has been bugging me, and I can't. Uh, this is, was uh, off-the-record commentary I had from both a police officer and from a um, bail bondsman that I talked to. Uh, and they both said that the knife that he had is really hard to come by in any inner-city neighborhood, uh, that particular kind of knife. Uh, and uh, while it's easy to buy a gun, it's not easy to get that kind of knife. And and that they're, they're making all kinds of suggestions where the knife may have come from, which I found interesting. But I don't know what that means. I just want to throw that out there. But, Ralik, your thoughts? Um, so my thoughts on this is that it was uh, a mess on both sides. And when I say that, I mean both the defense, or not the defense, on the police working with the prosecutor and on the prosecutor's side. I think this, is, this case shows us a larger indictment of the system as a whole. Um, and that, one, state's attorneys typically do work with police officers, and this state's attorney does work with police officers to prosecute cases such as Keith Davis Jr., um, in which there's evidence that hasn't been released, and other things. Um, and she's just starting, uh, she had just recently asked, the state's attorney's office asked for a postponement because they want to interview the officers involved in the, in the case, um, and we're one year later, right? Um, but at the same time, there was definitely some obstruction in my opinion, um, on the FOP and the police department's part for this case, right? And so that, to me, that just in, that shows a larger indictment of the system that, you know, it, it works to protect those in w- with power and those um, in which it cares for, right? And so it shows, it, it tells me that we have to figure out how to, to, to honestly build a new system. I don't think there is a reform that's a fix to this. Um, and there's some of the things that I would agree with uh, what uh, Marilyn Mosby said in her press release in which, you know, they could have tried this case a hundred times um, and they'd end up with the same results. And that's, for the most part, true. I don't think any of us have any hope um, that, tr- that true justice is going to come from a courtroom for uh, black murders by police officers. Um, so that's my initial okay. thoughts, I think. <laughs> D- Doug? Doug Colbert. Yeah, well, what I'm seeing, Mark, and I've said this uh, earlier in these trials is we're seeing a, a power struggle being played out here. Our our whole constitutional system uh, is based on checks and balances. So whatever branch of government we're looking at, there's got to be somebody to curb excesses. And it's the prosecutor whose job it is, is to review police action and where police engage in excesses, meaning that they're violating people's rights. Um, that it's the prosecutor who must step in. Um, and, and usually in Baltimore, what's happened for as long as anyone can remember is that the police have assumed power that does not exist in other parts of the United States. So what I'm referring to here is not just the power to arrest. Everyone accepts the fact that that's the police job. Um, but it's the power to charge people with crime. And here in Baltimore and through most of Maryland, it's the police who decide what the charges are after making an arrest. Everywhere else, it's an independent right. decision by the prosecutor. So when, when I listened to Miss Mosby yesterday, what she is saying to the public is, I need your help here in order to make sure that when police engage in criminal conduct, that we're able to respond to it. She's basically saying, we've done everything we can within the current system. 
But we must deal with this code of silence, for instance. We cannot allow police to hide behind, I didn't see or hear anything when they were witnesses to a crime. And we must accept the fact that she's sharing with us the very difficult struggle that her prosecutors had with some police officers. And she's very clear here that there is cooperation coming from command. There is cooperation coming from the commissioner. Um, but that's to be distinguished from some individual officers, detectives who refuse, who, in their opinion, uh, really undermine the case. So when an elected official is reaching out to the public, she's preparing to continue her struggle to try to assert the proper role of the prosecutor in terms of reviewing police arrests and police conduct. Uh, what I want to know is what we learn from this and where where this takes us. And I think there's very varying opinions in this in this panel about where we where this goes from here. The prosecutions will not take place. Nobody will ever be held accountable. It seems and. In the death of Freddie Gray, and if they were, how would that take place? Um, and so, what has to change? Make it a phone call in here, and then I'm going to really leap into that conversation with the four of you and our listeners. Where do we go from here? Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight is a number you can write to us here. At talk at steinershow.org. Tweet us at Mark Steiner. Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. And Rodney, you're on the air. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I noticed, and thanks for you know having me on the air. Um, Pleasure. In the beginning, before the case really opened up, from what I understand, when they did the autopsy on Freddie, and the coroner said it was a, he had an indentation in his skull that was the shape of a screw that was inside, it had matched up with either inside the paddy wagon or outside the paddy wagon. I'm not sure now. I, I don't know exactly where the hole was or the indentation of his skull was, but. I never heard that evidence other than, like, early in the case, but it, I guess they threw that out, too, and I think that's real good evidence that something happened where his head slammed up hard enough to cause that indentation in his skull, And but I never heard any more on that, and I think that's negligence somewhere. Well, that's interesting, you know, Rodney. I, I wonder if some of you have been at the trial from the beginning. Uh, Baynard or, or, or Eric, have, did you ever hear that during the trial, Baynard? No, no and, and, I mean, that's sort of... You know what I was talking about a, a minute ago that so many things that maybe facts weren't weren't admissible as evidence um, in the case, and so you heard a lot also early on about the the crushed voice box, which I never heard mentioned inside the courtroom. So before the the case went to trial, that was mentioned a lot. The knife was never mentioned inside the courtroom. So it, there, there's a whole group of things that that um, and and I don't recall the the screw on the head at all actually, but. Um, there, there are there's a whole vast world of things that, that weren't allowed inside the court that I think we will start talking about again right now. So and nobody, I, it, that's not belabor this. But if nobody remembers this, I don't want to just. No, I mean, like there that. was no evidence that I can recall that uh, referred right. to what Rodney was talking about. But one thing I do want to say, Rodney mentioned that there was negligence in this case. This goes far beyond negligence. And I, and I want to at least give my opinion that um, the prosecution presented strong evidence against the police officers, at least in three of the four cases. I felt uh, that a reasonable fact finder could have concluded uh, that the, the defendant was guilty. And, and that's because it's not negligent 
to to place somebody in a helpless, vulnerable situation where he's basically tied behind the back and he can't really protect himself and he's only inches away from him hitting a metal wall. Um, when someone takes that kind of action, you have to conclude inferentially that the person's aware of the serious risk of danger, of harm, of death, um, and you know, it's not a negligence case. What the prosecution was saying that this was a, a reckless homicide, this was even a depraved indifference, um, and there's a basis for that theory through the evidence that was presented. So, yeah, and, and of course we've had in the show other attorneys who just kind of don't feel it was a very strong case that was made, and Dwight Pettit talking about there are things they could have done to make a stronger case, especially around the medical examiner's report. But all that notwithstanding, the, I'm, before we go back to the phones here, but the idea is where we go from here. Clearly, no one's going to be held accountable in the death of Freddie Gray. Um, and that really seems to be very clear to me, Raleigh Case. The question is where this goes from here. And I'd like to hear your perspective on that and, and, and everybody around the table, because I think it would be very different ideas about what this means for the future. Raleigh? Um, for me, again, this is the show that we have to... Um Un- divorce ourselves from this current system of policing and, and, and prosecution. Um, we have to figure out what does a new system look like where this culture of this blue line of silence, blue wall of silence, whatever you is, is not allowed to exist, right? Um, and for me, because I understand, in my opinion, it's such an embedded culture in, into the police, um, both here and nationwide, that means we have to, you know, abolish the police in its current form. We have to figure out what does policing look like, what does, uh, you know, justice look like in a world that is not punitive, right, in a world that we don't have ultimately domestic domestic terrorists going in and occupying neighborhoods and running roughshed over people and, and courtrooms. Um, and so that's, for me, that's what that, that is. Um, I'm curious. What I want to come back to that, Raleigh. I, mean, I think we, we in our continuing discussions about what that looks like in this in this community and how you you change or reform that is, I think the the, the kind of the the crux of of the, of the question. Before we go back to the phones, Erica, do you want to jump in on that? Yeah, I mean, what what I learned in the court trials is that there's just lo- rampant levels of dysfunction in the police department. You know, where they talked about police officers not following a policy and whether they got the email about the new policy and. Did they read the email and, you know, what is the sort of standard procedure and um, giving out new policy? And, I mean, just there's, you know, the levels of disorganization is just ridiculous when you're thinking about someone who's there to protect the public. So I think, you know, there are a couple mm-hmm. of things that could come out of this, um, you know, in terms of um, people that have already been advocating to change the police bill of rights in terms of, you know, police having 10 days and, and, and you know, time period before they have to testify. You know, I think in police killings, they should be arrested in the same way that citizens are arrested. And, you know, they should give um, statements immediately. Um, you know, there was some question about CCTV footage being erased. Um, CCTV? You know, what is that? Um, the TV cameras that are you know, in various neighborhoods recording. Oh, right. Oh, oh, the CG, oh on, the, on the poles around people's neighborhoods. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, mm-hmm. right, 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 right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the, you know, getting evidence right away, I think, you know, maybe the Department of Justice in these uh, cases should come in right away and they should, there should be a special prosecutor or something that is independent from what, you know, we had to witness in terms of what, you know, strained relationships between the prosecution and police investigators. I think that, um, police officers can't be trusted to investigate their own, which would make sense, you know, in any kind of uh, 
you know, corporation or any kind of job. Um, and I really don't know, honestly, right. what to do in terms of the blue wall of silence. Like, that's just something that's cultural that I, you know, I don't know what steps you can take um, in order to start having police, you know, speak up. So let me go to the phone very quickly, Doug. I do want to get to the phone. So a lot of people are calling in. A lot yeah, of so w- well. what has to happen, in my opinion, is that the people, the community, the whole community, which includes the white community, really this is a moment where everyone must get engaged. If we don't want a code of silence to protect officers who commit crimes, then our voices have to be heard together. And and what we're seeing instead is we have to find ways of collaboration mm-hmm. between the police and the prosecution. You know, we have to find ways in which there are projects in which the police and the union and, you know, the the uh, the prosecution can join forces together. It, it's a relationship, Mark. We've all been in relationships where there are real power struggles. So we have to find issues that's going to allow well, them to I, come together. And I, I wonder if it's something, though, that people need to push in this community. And, we'll, uh, and, and uh, that, I'm going to go by the phones here, but whether we have to start talking together about not just the criminal justice aspect of this, not the aspect of the police and prosecutors and, and coming together, but whether we need to th- rethink completely what public safety means in a city like Baltimore um, and, and, and people organize from the bottom to push and change that nature. We have uh, eight new incoming city council people, many of which are open to new ideas of how you can do things in the city. Uh, we have organizations like Be More Block that Raleigh is part of, Raleigh Kays. There are, there are other people are doing other work in this city. Whether we need to start really thinking um, about a very different way of, of public safety and taking money out of the police budget and putting it into different things that actually heal communities and build community as opposed to worrying about the state's attorney and the police so much and, and, cha- and having to really fight to change that dynamic. It's not uh, a new so, so, or situational, Mark. Well, I think it, both it, things make sense. It, 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 it may be where you put your emphasis, where we put the battle uh, for justice. And so I'm curious what we all think about that. Let's go to the phones here. We'll come right back to that idea. This is a really important stuff. We've been trying to wrestle with this for weeks now. We're going to be continuing that. 410-319-8888. A couple of quick calls in here. Bill, you're on the air. Just say hello to everybody. Good morning, Bill. And then, you know, I guess my thing is uh, to your question you raised, what did we learn from this? I didn't learn nothing, Mark. I mean, I, I think that what it showed is that it showed that the only way this system is going to be changed is not through really changing political people. It's through that, that the people at the bottom, until we rise up and, you know, it's unfortunately almost carried this system down, but this system to be rebuilt, it's not going to change. You know, it's not what Marilyn Mosley did wrong. It's not what the uh, uh, defense attorneys did right is that this system is going to do everything it can to not convict police officers killing black people. And again, if we go back just here in Baltimore for a hundred years, I bet you cannot find three cases where police have went to jail to killing black people. So it's unfortunate, you know, but I think this system that has to just be uh, almost totally destroyed so it can be rebuilt in order to have a, a system that's going to give justice to black people and poor people. Bill, I appreciate the call. We'll, talk, we'll wrestle with that right after we come back from this break. Let's get another quick call in here, then we will go to break. Come back to our panelists. Marianne, you're on the air. Hi, Marianne. Welcome. Very much. I'm um, a physician in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you may wonder why a 77-year-old white 
woman in upstate New York has taken an interest in this, all I can say is it landed in my territory. I'm a neurologist. Okay. And Freddie Gray's neck was broken before he ever got in the van. I want to comment on the medical examiner's report because Mosby took the track of her charges from that. She referenced it in her initial announcement. And the medical examiner's report was completely inappropriate. The job of a medical examiner is to determine a cause of death. Instead of which, Carol Allen, who has had no clinical medical training beyond medical school on live patients, uh, took her entire preamble from police report. Her complete description of uh, what happened uh, when they arrested him, um, she refers to him walking, uh, she refers to him bearing weight on both legs, she refers to him entering the van, that's all from the police. And there is absolutely no video evidence to show that. What the video evidence does show is that Gray is being dragged to the van on legs that are rapidly evolving paralysis um, and are essentially functionally paralyzed. Hmm. That video, if my understanding is correct from Erica Blount, with whom I've had some conversation and whom I may say has been the first person in the media willing to take this seriously and investigate a little more, um, that video, I believe, was never completely shown in any of the uh, trials. Please, someone correct me if, if I'm not right about that. But any trained and knowledgeable person looking at that video knows that that's when his neck was broken. Uh, and all I can say is that people don't want to speak up. A few have spoken up. Right. Um, but not very many. Well, Marianne, what you said is, is, is pretty, really important, and it's been brought up on the show before by another attorney, Dwight Pettit, uh, not just, just in terms of what he thought we should know and don't know from that one medical examiner's report. Um, and, and I would ask you to do me a favor, even though Erica knows you, if you could hold on a moment, I'd like, my, I'd like my producer to pick up the phone, get your email and telephone number so I can call you, uh, and, mm -hmm. and get you back to talk to us more about this. Um, so please okay. just, well, hold on, and we'll do that. And we're, we're going to come back. I want to hear what Erica uh, and Boehner say, who have been covering this trial from, from what you just heard Marianne say. Then we're going to go to Mitchell, our next caller up, and come back to our panel as well. 410-319-8888. Join us for your thoughts and ideas. Uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. We're here with Doug Colbert, Baynard Woods, Erica Blount, Raleigh Hayes, and you at 410-319-8888. Eric, let me go right to you before we go back to the phones. Would you comment on what Marianne was saying? And, and then, Baynard, I'd like to hear your thoughts and a quick thought from Doug, and then we're, then we're going to hit the phones and go back to Raleigh. Yeah, no, um, it's a theory that I've not only heard from doctors, various doctors, but also um, lawyers have presented that to me and yesterday when um Baynard and I were in Sandtown after the um, press conference there was more than one person in the neighborhood who said the same thing there was one guy who told me that um he saw the police officers uh slam um Freddie Gray down and then uh you know they had said that 
he said that they told him, you know, you made me run, and, and then they slammed him down and, um, you know, stepped on his neck. You know, Kevin Moore, who filmed the video, right. said the same thing. Um, so I don't, you know, it was, it's just curious that the prosecutors never presented that or asked the questions or, you know, it just never came up in trial at all. Um, and, you know, Marianne had a, a very, you know, detailed um, explanation and, you know, various doctors have as well. So I just, um, you know, particularly around what the medical examiner um, had come up with it, in terms of the timing of the injury. So, you know, she said that it happened at the fourth stop, but there's, according to Marianne, you can't really make that determination as a medical examiner. Um, and so, you know, uh, it, it's it's something that is out of her purview. So I don't, I again, right. you know, I don't know why the prosecution never brought that up. And, you know, I was thinking when you said, you know, what have you learned in this trial? I think the main thing that we haven't learned is what exactly happened to Freddie Gray. And I think that's key. You know, that's that's the whole that was the whole point of the, tr- the trial to have a public trial is for people to get a better understanding, both of what you know what happened to him and and the truth. And I don't think it it helped in getting closer to the truth um, of what the details were in terms of his his actual death. Ben, a quick thought on that from you? Yeah, I mean, it's Carol Allen testified a, a in every trial, and and she was very open about, um, you know, what we were just talking about, that she got the narrative portions of what happened from the police. And, um, you know, you've had, you've had Dwight Pettidum here a number of times saying how police are often in the room with the medical examiner while they're doing the autopsy. And so um, it's not surprising that there could be, if, if police had a concerted story they wanted to be told, that a, a different story um, could emerge. And, and I'm, I'm really glad that Erica did this piece. I... I'd recently done a story on Kevin Moore, and he was talking about that. And, uh, you know, a, a different uh, radio host, I guess now podcast host, um, who also writes a column, wrote, I thought, a really lazy <laughs> column about this the other day and was dismissing the, this idea by putting a couple wackos who wrote into the sun, well, haven't you seen the video? And, and so he, instead of taking the strongest people who have this theory, medical examiners, lawyers, they, they took some some people who wrote letters to the Sun from England and tried to dismiss the entire thing. So I was glad to see some actual uh, reporting rather than them bloviating. So let me go to the phone. Unless you have something quick you want to say on this, Doug. Well, it's just that the, the, the narrative that was presented in court by the defense was that Freddie Gray was faking injury the whole time. And that narrative should have been challenged. And I think with Eric's article, I'm really interested in reading it because there is a piece of this narrative uh, that wasn't presented in the courtroom. 410-319-8888. We'll go get Raleigh in on this next one. Mitchell, you're on the air. Welcome. Hello. Good morning. Morning, Mitchell. You're on Good the morning. air. Yes, you're on the air. Hello? Mitchell, you there? You're on the air. Mitchell? Hello? <laughs> Guys across the glass, can you do something, please? Mitchell? Hello? Hey, bye. Please, across the glass, do something with a caller. You there, Mitchell? All right, well, let's go back. So, Raleigh, let, let me let you back in, and we'll try to get Mitchell back here again. Um, I don't know what just happened there. Sorry about that. Well, let's go to Kenny and see if Kenny has a comment. Kenny? Yes. You there? Yeah, Kenny, Kenny's there. We got you. Go ahead, man. All right. Um, I got a couple of issues. One of them is 
you know, as you call the Great Wall of uh, Police Violence, let's just call it real, the stop snitching mentality is also in the police department that's out here in the street. Um, the other thing that I want to say is, the biggest thing is that um, someone was held accountable for Freddie Gray's murder, but it was all the taxpayers, because all the taxpayers paid out to his family for what the wrongdoing was from the police. If we were to, just as the, the citizens get punished with what the police file or any other public safety or public service does, and then the taxpayer balance has to go to that, then we ought to be going back after these entities for that money back. Because just as our water bill and everything else is always challenged to go up, none of this stuff is ever addressed to go back to those departments. If any of those other officers that are not doing anything wrong was to know that their pay is going to be attacked for what these other people that are wrongfully doing the job or you're wearing those uniforms, I guarantee you that would be another motivation factor that would make them start pointing these people out and say, get up out of here because you're affecting my pension. You're affecting my money. So we need to start looking at where that money goes and how does it get paid back to the taxpayers because it's never the taxpayers that ever get reimbursed through anything. That's an interesting point, Kenny. I appreciate it. Thank you. I really do. Raleigh, your thoughts? Um, I mean, I think that is an interesting point, but again, I think it's more of a systemic and cultural issue, and it's really hard to uh, change a culture for people that aren't invested in it. Um, and I don't, and you know, we, we've, I think people have had these conversations before. The majority of Baltimore City Police Department doesn't even live in Baltimore or come from Baltimore. Um, so there's already a lack of investment in our city. Um, and then going back to reimagining what, you know, what does justice look like? Um, you know, there's things like restorative justice, and granted, uh, restorative justice doesn't apply to all situations like what do you do if somebody kills someone else. Um, but if we started reimagining what public safety is, right, like public safety isn't having 3,000 plus, plus police officers to me. Public safety is having a quality school to go to and, a, and potentially a quality job, right, so a, a quality a quality way of life so that I can survive, I can eat, work, play, and I don't have to worry about committing crime because I have things that, that the basic things that I need. Um, and there's always going to be people that, you know, are outside of those norms and want more or whatever. Um, but if we started actually investing in those things instead of, uh, you know, our elected officials not being actually loyal to the people they're supposed to represent um, and only loyal to those who have resources that don't need uh, elected official support or protection, um, I think we, we'd have a different city. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope that the incoming city council members and whoever the incoming mayor is, um, you know, can actually honor that. I, I don't have much hope, but I do hope that. I, I have some hope in some of the new council members coming in. I think there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a body of younger people coming in who are very thoughtful, very politically aware, very socially conscious, uh, who will not be so easily bought off. Um, uh, I, I, do ha- I do have some, some hope in that. This is, uh, you, you, can, you can, between the movements in the street, um, that you see happening and the organizing in communities like Communities United, the stuff you are doing, Raleigh, and other people are doing. There's momentum happening in the city, the stuff around uh, uh, the, the, uh, Port Covington and the organizing around that. I think that they're, they're, you, you can feel something welling up, um, and it won't change tomorrow night, but you can, you can feel something moving, I think. And it's not only the city council, Mark, because there's a group of newly elected delegates in, in Annapolis that 
um, are very much reform-minded. And we're talking about people like Eric Barron and Shelley Hedelman and Charles Sidnor and other people that have just served their first term there. And they're very interested in taking on some of the real power elements in in Annapolis. And one place you could begin is to look at the 40,000 people who can't walk the streets safely, uh, always vulnerable to arrest because they miss their court date. And and those 40,000 people, you know, if we could somehow find a way right. to get them back into the system, that would be a place where the police might well be very much in favor of that, as would the prosecution. And it means that we we bring community together. And that's a big piece of how we bring community together and, and put the power back in the hands of the community and all of this. Then back to the phones, come back to our guests at 410-319-8888. Let us go to Tom. You're on the air. Welcome. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Tom. Always, always good to listen to you guys. The voice of sanity in Baltimore, I call it. Thank you. Uh, uh, my name is Tom. My son was murdered last August the 9th mm, in sorry. Baltimore City. So sorry. And uh, there's been one trial postponement after another for one reason or after another. When I call the Baltimore State's Attorney's Office, uh, it's hard to get hold of anyone. When I do get a call back, they're always too busy to speak to me about it to find out why it's been postponed again. Yeah. I'm just wondering if Baltimore State's Attorney's Office is so tied up with their resources on this one subject, Mr. Freddie Gray, that they may not have the resources and time to pursue justice in other cases. Uh, Tom, you know, I, I, you're not the first one to say that. First of all, I'm deeply sorry to hear about your son. Um, it must, I just can't imagine. So I, I'm just really sorry, to, and all the other people in the city who have lost their children uh, to violence in our communities. Um, but, but I think that, that that is something I've heard over and over again that that this that this has kind of held the state attorney from doing any other serious work. They've been so focused on this um, that it has not allowed the kind of thing that you're talking about to happen. I don't know if uh, Erica or or Baynard has heard any of that. Have you? I mean. I, I feel like yeah, there's no, so I mean, many other that, issues you know, as well as that. Well, well, one at a time, one at a time. Very quickly, Bannon, then very quickly, Erica. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that they, they have put a lot of resources into this, but they also have a huge number of homicides that they're, they're trying to deal with and, you know, a, a relatively new staff. Mosby hasn't been in office that long. A lot of people left or, or whatever for politics. So I think it's a really complicated picture. What were you going to say, Erica? No, yeah, I mean, I agree that um, it, to some extent that, you know, that there were, an, you know, a large amount of resources put towards the Freddie Gray case, but, I mean, it, I can't really distinguish between, what you know, which unlawful death is more important than the other. So, I mean, it's, I wish that, you know, there were enough resources to put towards all of these cases um, and that she had enough staff or what have you to, you know, really do... Um, a thorough investigation for all cases. I know that, you know, if you read the comment sections, people are were particularly upset about, you know, just the very thing um, that the caller asked Tom, about. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, um, it's a legitimate question, um, but also, you know, it's a legitimate question of, <clears throat> you know, we why do we need these? I, I, I really liked what um, Malik said in terms of, like, safe policing. It really would change the dynamic altogether if we had, you know, resources in terms of schools and, and, you know, these civil lawsuits that cost millions of dollars that are coming out of taxpayers' money, you know, like uh, the other caller said that, um, 
you know, if it came from police unions or if police officers were insured or what have you, you know, I've heard a lot of different ideas. Um, then it would, it, that's a, a definite uh, great idea in terms of changing the culture, but then also in terms of finances, like we're spending money that could be used in other places, um, you know, for people who are public servants, you know, um, it's essentially, you know, wrong, wrongful death, like our, you know, our own oppression, really. So I think, you know, there are other ways um, that we could uh, spend that money. You know, I was also thinking, we go back to the phones here um, uh, and get another caller in and come back to the, to, to, to the guests. Um, that We've talked a lot about the, the deaths in the city on this program, too, the people murdered and shot in the streets of Baltimore. And if we had a different idea of public safety, if we started doing things in a different way and have different people in our communities making peace, creating peace, working as health workers, community workers, we could stem the violence if we were serious about stemming the violence. Um, and also at the same time fighting to end the poverty and racism that plagues the poor communities of the city. And I think that, that we have to really begin thinking in a very different way if we're going to change this, this dynamic. Um, because I am keep, I'm haunted by the number in my head, which is not just about Baltimore. I'll say one more time and go back to the phones, um, that from 1980 to 2013, 262,000 black men in this country have been murdered. That's an astounding statistic. At the same time that wealth has gone to the 1%. That's been happening in our poorest communities in this country. So I just, you know, we have to, we, we have to as Raleigh keeps saying, we have to change the political dynamic because we can't let that kind of thing keep go on. 410-319-8888. Let's go to Margie. You're on the air. Then back to our guests. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, we can, Margie. You're on the air. Welcome. Okay. Uh, yes, I uh, just was making an observation because when I first saw the video of Freddie Gray as they were putting him uh, in the patrol wagon, he was hollering. I mean, he was hollering to the top of his voice and his right leg was dragging. His left leg seemed to be bent uh, on an angle. And when when they showed the videos in the courtroom, they they never, you never heard the hollering. And he was actually hollering. And that was when I saw that on, t- on, on the television when they first showed uh, him being put into the... Um, into the uh, 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 wagon. And the other thing is they put him in head first. So, you know, I don't know whether or not he was shoved in or what, but um, something was wrong with him before they put him in that uh, wagon. Thank you so much for that call, Marion. And, and uh, let me read a couple of tweets and let you jump in here, Doug, and everybody can jump in as well. Uh, Kevin Rector tweeted in in response to the New York Medical Examiner who called in said about the Freddie Gray video, any trained person looking at the video knows that was when Freddie Gray's neck was broken. And then, except, of course, every medical expert in Baltimore on both sides who actually saw Freddie Gray's medical records, Marianne tweeted back in, we need a DOJ already investigating the Baltimore PD investigation of Gray's death. They need to hone down. Yeah, I, I think what's most important here is that uh, we the police have to look at this as not as an us versus them situation, but as a we situation. And if 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 there is a we, then the police are going to listen to the voice of community. They're going to find out what would happen that would serve community best. And the police have to 
they have to get back to that role of helping people, not just arresting people. Uh, uh, Raleek, let me let you jump in. Raleek, you there? Do we have Hello? A... Yes, I'm here. Um, I'm sorry, and I don't disagree. Like, don't get me wrong, I think there are relatively some okay, okay people in police departments, and, um, but you're still a part of the problem, right? Like, if you're not willing to call out the officers publicly um, that are doing wrongdoing, then you are a part of the problem. And I don't think there's realistically any way to bridge that gap of mistrust between police officers and particularly black communities where you're talking about hundreds of years, well, not hundreds, but years of trauma, right? Like years of consistent, consistent trauma, right, where these people have power over you and they exercise it and abuse it, right? There is no we in a world, again, when police are domestic terrorists, like point blank period. Like they come and they enjoy wreaking havoc in these communities. There are a lot of police officers that legitimately enjoy that, right? And that, that's not a we. They don't care about community. Um, when I was arrested at the recent protest we, we held, you know, there was plenty of police officers that were just, you know, enjoying laughing, mocking us, um, talking about how, you know, we're not highly trained, but, you know, I, I, I do more good in my life than you will ever do. You don't know me from, from Adam or Eve. You don't know that I used to work at a, a nonprofit that, that mentored young, young people that worked with them for years and paid them. You don't know how many young, young lives I've touched in my short life. But that is the kind of attitude, right? Like, it's not about hating cops. It's about hating the system that allows them to abuse their power. And right? I, and, and, and as long as that continues, and as long as they feed into it because they enjoy that power, there will be no reconciliation. And Raleigh, really, I would just say, you know, it has been a hundred years. I mean, it has been a long time. I mean, yeah. it, it, when you think about um, your your the, the women the women who raised you who and 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 the people in that family around the east side of Baltimore, uh, and and the, the the folks I grew up with in your family. I mean, the police have been like that on the east side of our city and the west side of our city since I was a little boy. So and beyond that, so this is not something that just happened yet to, yesterday morning. Um, and I think that's important for us to kind of put in perspective as well. We have a, we only have a, like nine minutes left here, and I need to get some callers in. I'm going to get back and some quick thoughts from our guests on what we just said. Eric, why don't you jump in, Baynard and Doug, and then let me try to get a couple calls in here with any luck. Um, yeah, I think that is doable. I think, you know, I, I read an article not too long ago about a Richmond, California police officer who fired, you know, uh, I think it was upwards of like 100 or something ridiculous, uh, maybe not that much, but, you know, Police officers who were openly racist, who had, you know, records that, um, you know, included people, uh, you know, making charges against them and complaints, and that, and and within the period that he became the chief of police, you know, I think it was a two-year period where there were no police-involved um, deaths. So I think it's doable. It's something that, um, you know, it has to come from the top. So. You know, I'm I'm old. I grew up in a time where there was officer friendly and all that. And I think, what do you, you say? Know, you're old. <laughs> <laughs> old enough to remember officer friendly. And you know, we had police officers come and and perform and a police band the whole the whole nine yards. So I think you know that's it's something that it, it's not a, a you know end all solution to what's going on, but it definitely is something that, you know, starts kids early on to think that, you know, there's something about uh, police officers that, you know, you can trust. 
Um, so let, let me. Yeah, let me just, two tweets came in. We were, we were almost we're going up against the clock here, so I want to get you all in. Um, uh, two tweets just came in. Matthew tweeted in, why would the defense want to argue that Freddie Gray was injured in the van? And Soft Dive of Oblivion tweets in, uh, obviously that neurologist from New York didn't see the part where Freddie Gray stepped into the van by himself. I watched that thing over and over again, and I didn't see it either. So, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, well, now, um, a, a few of the medical doctors said that, one, that, you know, it's possible that it's it's not really clear on the video whether he is using that leg or right. not. Um, but then also, it's possible that he, there's partial paralysis, that there's still accessory muscles that will work. Um, you know, and, and that, you know, him being in the van on the floor and that, you know, whatever happened um, afterwards, subsequently, that, you know, it would just led to more damage, more injuries, until, you know, finally, by the end, his spinal cord was severed. So, so uh, yeah. I'm sorry, I need to jump into the other guest before we run out of time here. Doug, real fast, and we'll come through it. But yeah, I, I, I still go back to the idea that within the police department, there's a struggle. And, and it's not that every police officer is a domestic terrorist. I mean, that, that unfortunately, Malik, that goes too far for me. Because there are officers. You're welcome to your opinion. <laughs> exactly, and there are officers who call and say there is no way they would ever treat Freddie Gray the way he was treated. There's no way that a van driver who's been a van driver for years uh, would would allow Freddie Gray to be mistreated like he was. So I think what's important, and this is just a suggestion, but you know, history becomes very important. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the police department allowed the history of this country to be taught to police officers? as part of their interaction with community. So they didn't fear community, uh, African-American community in particular, but rather they understood people's struggles. They understood that people's aspirations are the same. But you're not going to get there if you discount the long history of, of, of oppression, of, of uh, unequal justice. That's always been part of this country's legal system. Uh, Manny, you'll have a quick thought here before we have to roll? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that puzzled me, and, and I was going to call Doug and ask him about it later today, but it's why she drops the case now, because we had a chance in, especially in Miller's trial with Nero, was the theory that an arrest of bad probable cause and you touch someone equals assault. And so Nero won because he hadn't touched Gray until after he was arrested. And so I think that could be a really important discussion to have because people end up being arrested in Baltimore City on bad probable cause all the time. And so I was puzzled that I, I thought that if they lost on Miller, that it would be that the charges would be dropped. But I really thought they would go through with Miller. So let me let me give I guess we haven't spoken. I'm sorry, do we have time for another caller? Yes. No. We have, let's get a quick caller in here. 410-319-8888. Uh, John, you're on the air. John, you there? Uh, yes, sir. Can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Go ahead. Good. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that uh, I don't think anybody's paying attention to it, but uh, the state's attorney uh, in any city in the country is one of the most powerful positions that uh, exist. And uh, black Americans have been subjected to criminal justice system disparities. In other words, we get in trouble more often because we get over-identified by police, hyper-prosecuted by prosecutors, biased by normal juries, and then disproportionately sentenced to long terms in jail versus non-Anglo-American or, or Anglo-American. Mm -hmm. Now, so Maryland did a great thing, a great thing, by turning against a group that no other prosecutor in the country usually turns against. What I'll suggest to you is that in Baltimore, 
The Fraternal Order of Police, the police union, is the largest organized and legal gang in the city. There's some very good people who work at the police department. There's some people who mean well and would like to do well. But when it comes time that one of their people has gone astray, like Mark Furman in California during the OJ case, uh, the, the entire rank falls in favor of that person. They do themselves a discredit. They deserve the, the uh, disrepute that the black community has. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past uh, uh, our, our communities to start resisting police altogether. John, I appreciate the call. Yeah, no, I think John makes some very, very good, important points here. And I think one thing when we're talking about the FOP, we understand that the union protects its members. But by protecting its members, it's not protecting the interest of the public. And I think when the FOP says that the police acted 100% correctly, uh, that doesn't help matters. Uh, everybody has a quick 30 seconds to close here. Ralik? Um. Again, I'll just reemphasize that as long as, uh, you know, police, the rank and file support officers, their fellow officers, whether they're wrong or right, um, you're, you're a part of the problem and you will fall under my heading of domestic terrorism. Like, right. that's, just, that's just where I stand. Erica Blount, 30 seconds. Yeah, no, I, just to piggyback on what Doug said, I think that's a, a great point that, you know, the FOP said yesterday that they did everything 100% correctly. However, there's somebody who died in police custody. They could have at least admitted that something went, you know, something went wrong. They, there is some culpability on their part, but they refuse to do that. And Bannon Woods, final thought. Yeah, I think it, it's important to mention at least not that, that there could necessarily be a lot of hope from it, but there is the administrative review of the officers that's still going on. And so you said there's no just, there, there won't be, there's still a possibility at least. Um, that something will, will happen. These uh, I'm going to thank the four guests here that we just had. Bernard Woods, who is reporter with The Guardian, editor-at-large for the City Paper. Erica Blount, you just heard before that, reporter and author. Both these people have been doing some incredible coverage of this trial. Uh, Doug Colbert, professor of law at the University of Maryland Carey School of Law, who's been covering this trial every day uh, from a legal perspective uh, here. And Raleigh Hayes, coordinator for Be More Black. I want to thank you all so much for being part of this program today. Thank you so thank much, you Mark. And uh, Monday, we'll be coming back to this with a roundtable. Uh, as one of our hours to get into this a little deeper uh, as uh, with some of the same guests and some new people. So stay with us for that. Uh, it's Thursday, which means it's time for Sound Bites and our look at food, farming, and our environment in the future. Stay with us. We'll be right back with that segment. Don't go away. Mm-hmm.